0: Now, The Three Martini Lunch with Greg Karumbas and Jim Garrity.
1: And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of The Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Karumbas of Radio America. We think we have... Bad, bad and crazy martinis today, but there's a sliver of good and certainly a sliver of entertainment in the first one. So don't get too brooding just yet. Kirsten Gillibrand is still running for president. That's kind of entertaining, kind of quirky. (laughs) Uh, She still thinks she has a chance. Maybe she's just looking to scratch her way across the qualifying line for this next round of Democratic debates, but it's not looking good right now. And it's not just the general public that's disinterested in her continuing to, uh, the run for president, but her staffers are in the same position. First of all, great writing by Jazz Shaw over at Hot Air. He says the bottom line here is that this candidacy is seriously looking like a wounded animal searching for a dry place to go curl up and await the end. That's not very encouraging if you're Jill LeBrand, but uh, the Daily Caller might even have worse news for her. At least two former staffers and one friend to New York Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand say it's time for the lawmaker to quit the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. One former aide even went so far as to describe the senator's performance in the Democratic presidential debates as performative and obnoxious, according to the New York Post. Quote, I don't know that anyone even wants to see her on the debate stage. Everyone I have talked to finds her performative and obnoxious, said the ex-staffer, who works in Gillibrand's Senate office. So, Jim, I can see why she's staying in there, because clearly the people closest to her just can't get enough of her.
0: (laughs) Or nobody wants her back in the Senate that way either. (laughs) Could be that too. Uh, You know, here's the thing. It's kind of interesting. We're strange as it may sound, as it's August 27th. But, you know, look, people have been running since January. So we're coming up on about eight months of of campaigning. We can already start thinking about what's going to happen after 2020. Pete Buttigieg is probably not going to be the Democratic nominee, uh, but I think you can safely say that anybody who can have the bonanza in fundraising that he's had, and he's had some pretty good, solid debates. You know, we're, we're probably going to have Pete Buttigieg to kick around for another couple of cycles because of his age and because he's made a fairly good impression for himself this time around. Yeah, he's probably not going to be the nominee, but he could very well run again in 2024 or 2028 or um you know, if he, if he hangs around till his Biden age, I believe the, the early twenty one hundreds, right? <laughs> um, but there are certain candidates where I think you can safely say this was their shot, and if it's not, if it didn't happen for them this year, it's not going to happen four years from now, eight years from now. John Hickenlooper probably not making a comeback. Jay Inslee, you know, and this isn't just an age factor, although that certainly is one of the factors. I think it's also a matter of did you overperform? Did you underperform? Did you have anything unique or interesting to say? Hickenlooper is a unique guy, but the Democratic electorate just did not seem to be interested in, in buying what he was selling this cycle. You'd have to imagine a real big change in, in the political environment for somebody like him to say, oh, get me Hickenlooper, be the mood of the, uh, the Democratic primary voters. And I think you can say Kirsten Gillibrand has done herself quite a bit of damage. This is somebody who is a rising star uh, arguably, since 2006, she won that house district, and it was, you know, it was purple. It wasn't deep red, but it was, you know, she was pro governor men, She was uh, tough on the budget. She was very tough on illegal immigration. Opposed to gay marriage, she had a principled opposition to gay marriage, believing it was between a man and a woman. Until she was appointed senator, and uh, she was told to change her position, and she did. <laughs> so that's, that's how you got that change. So she read, I remember I, I really enjoy making fun of this profile that Vogue wrote about her in, in early 2017, all eyes on Kirsten Gillibrand. And I think we can now safely say that Kirsten Gillibrand really rubbed people the wrong way in this, in this uh, election cycle, uh, trying too hard, kind of phony, not able to explain those shifts in position particularly well. Maybe the Tracy flick comparisons are a little, ins- a little unfair or a little sexist or something like that. But, uh, she just had this ham-handedness to everything she's done so far. I think, you know, there was a lot of room to go after Biden. She tried to argue that Biden opposes women working outside the House. <laughs> you know, like it was like, She managed to pick the least plausible argument all based on this idea of, I'm a young mom like you, blah, blah, blah. It was a really weird, maybe she was trying not to make the same mistakes Hillary did. Maybe she was trying to say, look, I'm a New York uh, Democratic senator. How do I appeal to the rest of the country? Maybe she thought that me too. Was going to be the the you know the wave that she was going to ride to the White House. None of these have worked out. She's been stuck in the one percent to two percent range. I mean, it's one thing for a House member. It's, it's nothing for somebody else who's been a fairly prominent member of the Senate to be you know struggling along with that asterisk category there. So um, I think it's safe to say that not only is this you know this year not happening for Kirsten Gillibrand, it's really hard to imagine a scenario where four to eight years from now Democrats say, hey, you know what, you no know, one can really use at a moment right now to nominate Kirsten Gillibrand.
1: Yeah, that's probably right. And the funny thing is, is the one issue where she did probably take a principled stand was the Al Franken situation, and the Democratic donors have never forgiven her for it. But you can help her get on that debate stage. The Free Beacon has the story today that Kirsten Gillibrand is launching a T-shirt giveaway and for just $30 you can get a Kirsten Gillibrand for President t-shirt. Well, actually you only have to give a dollar. They're worth $30. That's how much she paid for them. And so she's ah! she's willing to absolutely take a financial bath on this in order to try and squeak across the debate stage, but Jim, she's still about 20,000 individual donors short of the 130,000 she needs. So she needs to get rid of 20,000 t-shirts. Would you pay a dollar for a Kirsten Gillibrand for President t-shirt?
0: Let me think. <laughs> By the way, she's selling what she claims is a $30 t-shirt for a dollar. Yeah. So she can be the next president and balance the budget.
1: <laughs> Given the fact that she's at 0. 0.6 in the polls and that's never going to be worth anything, I'm not sure the dollar is actually a good investment. So
0: I, mean, I, I guess if you're cold, <laughs> you're working out, need something to sweat in or something, I guess I guess that'll do. If you need to clean something, I bet you it works as a rag, you know. <laughs> Senator, never say I don't try to help you out.
1: Well, speaking of inauthentic, let's move to our uh, next bad martini, and let's talk about Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh is running for president. He's a one-term congressman from Illinois. He's been a radio talk show host. Not anymore. Uh, He says he's uh, got to run because no one else will do it, and Trump absolutely is a moral stain on our country, so it's got to be done, and he's the only one willing to do it. So he goes on uh, CNN with John Berman. This is Yesterday, and Berman asks a pretty simple question about something that he noticed wasn't On Joe Walsh's website, at least yet. We
0: looked at your campaign website for policy positions right now, and there's not much up there, if anything, about policy right now. So policy-wise, how would you be different than President Trump?
1: (laughs) It's a great question because understand, remember, I'm running against Trump because he's morally unfit, period. It's about Trump. It's not about the issues. It's about Trump. But on the issues, I believe in a wall. Trump hasn't built a wall. I believe in border security. Trump has botched the border. The border's a bigger mess now than it was when You're he got elected. you to the elected. right of the president on immigration. If you want to call that to the right. But again, I don't believe Trump is anywhere to the left or right. Trump is only about Trump. So, Jim, you threw out a few platitudes there, no specifics, really. But uh, what do you make of a guy whose entire campaign is to take out the incumbent? And if he were to actually succeed, which he won't, he has no idea what he wants to do. Yeah.
0: Look, I had kind of thought that, you know, last week as, as the you know talk that Joe Walsh was going to run was uh, stirring up, you and I offered our assessment and I thought I'd kind of said my piece. Um, that This strikes me as less running for president than running to be a celebrity It's really kind of chillingly transparent how much uh, he has decided that there is a market out there for somebody to be, in his mind, the right of center challenger to Trump. Um, And I think that it's safe to look at polling numbers. Not only is there not a lot of that, I think there's actually a greater appetite on the left. This is something that the Democrats who really hate Trump want to see the Republican Party rising up in opposition to Trump. But so far, that doesn't seem to be happening. And as I keep emphasizing, Joe Walsh is a really bad example of this. You can, you know, give me your typical Republican senator with solid conservative uh, record, you know, your Cory Gardner types or something. That could work. Trump versus a conservative non-Trump in a 2020 primary, that's, this is a very different kind of race. Joe Walsh isn't that guy. And not only is Joe Walsh not that guy, like, you know, it's not a matter of his, his positions on the uh, issues. He's saying it's about Trump and his standards and his behavior and his rhetoric and stuff like that. Greg, it was early twenty eighteen when he was using the S-word holes comment about Haiti and comparing it to Chicago and insisting that's not racist and stuff like that. It wasn't that long ago. Joe Walsh was a fairly vehement defender of it. And the other thing which kind of jumped out at me this morning, and I wrote about a bit in the Morning Told Newsletter. So the guy who was apparently hired to be campaign manager for Joe Walsh. Uh, They were having conversations and then all of a sudden contact just stopped. And he said, for eight days, I haven't been able to reach Walsh in any way, shape or form. Now, if Walsh decided he didn't want to work with this guy, that's fine. He's got that right. But don't ghost him, man. (laughs) Sure, it's going to be an awkward conversation, but tell the guy, look, I've decided to go in a different direction. I don't want you to be my campaign manager. Fine, whatever. In his video. Well, I'm announcing it. Walsh says, you know, I, I thought about all the things I was going to supposed to do to tip my own the water and establishment, But I decided not to do that because the you know, the moment is too urgent. Greg, this is like saying I'm not doing my homework because the moment is too urgent. Some of this stuff matters. Right. And one of the first things is, is that Joe Walsh clearly didn't go through any of his past comments on Twitter and decide to take them down which is why everybody and their brother is having a field day going through this and saying, oh, remember that time you said that uh, Bill Crystal should sail off into the sunset and never come back? <laughs> remember the time you said Trump was terrific? By the the other thing is, that every once in a while, apparently he's used the N-word, not in a in a hateful way, but in a term of discussing it. Now, most of us have good sense to say when we're talking about the N-word, we use the euphemism, the N-word, just so that there's no case, that, you know, no misinterpretation or something. Joe Walsh doesn't have that good sense to do that. Um, so this really looks like a guy who up until very recently was pretty much Trumpy. As I put it the other way, a couple of days ago, the fact that Joe Walsh has turned over a new leaf and he wants to, uh, set a different tone and and be more respectful. Hey, good for him. I, 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 I'm not mocking him when I say this. I really think this is, this would be better for the country. It would be better for, uh, our discussion of our issues. It would be better if we got away from the name calling and all that stuff. Hey, good for him. But that doesn't mean I want to make a commander in chief. And Joe Walsh has basically said, look, I've gone a whole year without saying that Obama's a Muslim or doubting that he was born in the United States. Make me president. And I'm sorry, I don't buy into that. I think it's kind of fascinating to see, one, the number, of, obviously, Trump supporters don't like him. Surprise, surprise. I don't see that many either never Trump or Trump skeptical or I think you can just characterize Trump-weary conservatives flocking to Joe Walsh. And if they are, I think you know, it's it's basically saying... Well, he stopped being like Trump in terms of his personality a year ago, so that's good enough for me. And honestly, I think if you're if if, if that's all it takes get to get you to sign on to Joe Walsh, I think you're something of a cheap date.
1: <laughs> that term got thrown a lot, around a lot in 2016. Seems like uh, it might be back in vogue a little bit uh, here in uh, the 2020 cycle. One of the things I keep hearing from Joe Walsh and the people who are sticking up for him as a plausible alternative to Trump in the GOP primary is, Well, the people who are in more powerful positions just don't have the courage to do this. They're cowards. They won't put their own necks on the line. So Joe Walsh has to do it. Well, three years ago, pretty much every prominent person in the Republican Party was running for president against Trump when he was a gadfly. And everybody thought for the first few months he was kind of a joke in the in the campaign. But, I mean, you had you had Cruz and Rand Paul on the right. You had Jeb as your establishment guy. You had Rubio there in the middle. And then Rick you had Harry, Christie. And, Bobby and, Jindal, <laughs> Scott Walker. Yeah. It's not like people didn't try to take out Donald Trump, but now he's the incumbent Republican president with a nearly 90% approval rating among the GOP and the full apparatus of the RNC. Uh, I'm not sure what you think you're going to accomplish here in a primary.
0: Yeah, and, and look, you know, we, we've seen Republicans who decided, I'm going to be the anti-Trump. Uh, Mark Sanford comes to mind. Jeff Flake comes to mind. Corker had his, you know, stronger disagreements with it. All of these guys then chose to retire. Paul Ryan, basically, these people who decided, you know what, I'm I'm tired of living, of working in Trump's Washington. I can't get anything done. I know we're going to be the minority in the House next time around. Anyway, I'm retiring. For the case of uh, Sanford, he lost his primary. The Republican Party has has by and large spoken. Are there some? anti-Trump or, or Trump-disagreeable Republicans who can survive a primary? Sure, there probably are here and there. But most Republicans have probably decided, you know what, I'm going to keep my head down. Yes, I know he says and does ridiculous things all the time. But me as Congressman so-and-so, it doesn't do me any good to stand up and denounce the president every single day he does this. You know, the Will Hurds of the world, I think Will Hurd would have been a safe uh, uh, bet for re-election. You know, you even he's tired of this. You know, this is this is a bad situation, but the idea of why aren't, you know, more Republicans all standing up at once and denouncing the president every time he goes off the rails and goes on some Twitter tirade, well, look, they'll probably lose a primary. The end result of that, if every member of the, a Republican member of Congress was frustrated with Trump openly expressed that frustration, exactly how they feel the moment they felt it for the whole national media to see, the end result would be a whole lot of lost primaries and a whole bunch of, you know, even more sycophantic Suck ups to Trump replacing them in these primary wins. So you can kind of raise the question of whether that really gets, uh, gets the Trump critics uh, in the direction they really want to go in. Or maybe we just have more Democratic victories, which I have a sneaking suspicion is what, well? well, at least the, the open, at least a whole bunch of folks on the left would much rather see anyway.
1: Absolutely. And some folks who claim they're still on the right. Remember how it was really important that all these uh, supposed conservatives said it was to elect a Democratic Congress in 2018?
0: Or if we had to stop uh, that Trumpite Ed Gillespie. <laughs> Because, look, Greg, if we had elected Ed Gillespie, you could have a Republican governor of Virginia who did racist things and embarrassed the state. (laughs) Can't have that happen. Boy, would our faces be red.
1: All right. Let's move on to our final martini. I think it's crazy. Uh, Brett Stevens. He's certainly from that category. Uh, Supposedly on the right, uh, went hardcore anti-Trump in 2016. Uh, and then stayed there, hostile to uh, conservatives pretty much across the board. Uh, he does uh, occasionally uh, defend free speech, which is very important, which makes this story even more bizarre. So one of Stevens' colleagues, one of the editors over at The New York Times, tweets out, Breaking, there are bedbugs in the NYT New York Times newsroom. So then David Kopp, this professor over at George Washington University, replies to that tweet saying, The bedbugs are a metaphor. The bedbugs are Brett Stevens. A little bit later on Monday afternoon, Carf tweets again. This afternoon, I tweeted a brief joke about a well-known New York Times op-ed columnist. It got nine likes and zero retweets. I did not at him. He does not follow me. He just emailed me, CCing my university provost. He is deeply offended that I called him a metaphorical bedbug. And then the issue was brought up again today on MSNBC. Chris Jansing uh, was the host. Uh, here's Stevens to begin.
0: I also copied his provost uh, on the note. People are uh, upset about this. I want to be clear. I had no intention whatsoever to get him in any kind of professional trouble. But it is the case at The New York Times and other institutions that uh, people should be aware, managers should be aware of the way in which their people, their professors or journalists uh, interact with the rest of the world. That's certainly the
1: case. Um is that the worst thing that you have ever been called on social media?
0: There's a, there's a bad history of being called, uh, of being analogized to insects that goes back to a lot of totalitarian regimes in the past.
1: Maybe it is really bad, Jim, but uh, given our current political climate, that barely even registers. So what do you make of uh, the Stevens' reaction to being called a bedbug?
0: It's interesting, the Washington Post article about this that, that kind of brought this to everybody's attention. GW professor David Karf really sees himself as the victim in all of this, which is pretty insufferable. Um, look, you know, calling somebody a bed bug is a really nasty thing to say. And yes, there is a long history of totalitarian regimes that compare certain groups of people to something that is some kind of animals rats, snakes, pigs, apes, vermin, you know. And there's a long history, if you look at the history of genocides, that this is one of the things you do in order to make. Doing away with someone, killing someone, more morally acceptable is they're not really people. They're not really human beings. Having said that, as much as a jackass that David Karp is being, can we say that, Greg?
1: I don't know. That's another animal. That's as politically as charged, you
0: know, we're running afoul of ricochet standards or something like that. But you know, <laughs> as much of a donkey as, as you know, Karp is being. Look, we compare people to animals all the time. And I don't think as much of a a jackass as David Karp is being, I don't think he really wants to see Brett Stevens done away with. Uh, But just a bit of the characterization of Brett Stevens. You and I probably would find him, call characterizing a, you know, a moderate Republican, moderate conservative, somewhere on the right, but not, but you know, far from the most, uh, uh, I think he was calling for repealing the Second Amendment. You know, he's not the most, you know, hard-right conservative you're ever going to find. He is, by the standards of the New York Times editorial page and the average New York Times reader, probably (laughs) arch-right reaction. A lot of this stems from the fact that when Ross do that or when Brett Stevens writes something on the New York Times editorial page, a good chunk of the New York Times readership is like, what is this doing here? This offends me with my existence. I don't pick up this newspaper to be challenged. (laughs) I pick up this newspaper every morning to get confirmation that Donald Trump is the worst guy in the world, that Democrats are right about everything, and that progressives need to win more. So this is, this is the subtext ever since Brett Stevens got hired. Because Stevens was over at the Wall Street Journal, and people had much less griping about him there. The New York, there's a chunk of the New York Times readership that really does want to see Brett Stevens go away, at least from the editorial page. I hope not necessarily to have him you know, meet some untimely end or something like that. But this is, you know, Karp really does, you know, come across as a jerk. Uh, but I don't think he wants to kill him. And I, and I thought about it because, you know, here's the thing. Stevens doesn't help himself. Now, when Stevens, you know, CC's the provost, I think it's fair to want. And it is fair, you know, if I ever, like, lost my you-know-what on, on Twitter and I started, you know, fuming at people in a way that really, you know, was, was over the top. Greg, I know at some point you'd probably, at the very least, you get an email Jim, you doing okay? <laughs> right, right. That that sense of like, we've all been angry. We've all said things we regret. But the idea of somebody comes out and say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, you're, this is a bad look for you." Calm down. You know, get get off the internet. Put down the phone. Um, and I think when you're calling someone a bedbug, then yeah, you're you're starting to get into that territory. Um, it would have been nice if somebody else at GW could have you know knocked on the professor's door and said, "Hey, um." David, you feeling all right? Get off the computer. Just, just take a walk, calm down a little bit. You're 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 it's not a good look for you. Does this mean carp should be fired? No. If you decide to fire anybody whoever, you know, blasted off something really angry and snotty on Twitter, uh, unemployment rate would be something in the neighborhood of 80%. Uh, you know, this 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 happens quite a bit. Having said that, it would have been nice if carp could have apologized. But that in that article, there's no indication of that whatsoever. David Carp sees nothing wrong with saying hey, you know what, I really strongly disagree with Stevens, I really don't like his columns, but the man's not a bed bug and I shouldn't have called him that. He doesn't, you know. Um, But finally, so I have this post in the corner and I didn't know if people were gonna like it or not, but you know, Greg, not every reference to an insect is necessarily calling for somebody's extinction. Maybe that makes me the fly in the ointment. Um, The internet, or we could say the web, is a hive of this kind of name calling, and every troll's as busy as a bee, and it's easy to stir up a hornet's nest. These comments bug people. One day you think you're the bee's knees covering a race that's tight as a tick, and then the next moment you're bug-eyed over some nasty insult that leaves a bee in your bonnet. You're a nice guy, you wouldn't hurt a flea. But the idea of somebody hating you like that was butterflies in your stomach and it really louses up your day. For a while everybody was on Twitter, but now you can't stand the nasty name calling. so people are just dropping like flies. You know, in a better world, our debates would be principled and respectful and focused on issues. The personal stuff wouldn't be anybody's beeswax. Somebody's come around to your perspective or they said you had a point. You'd say, hey, you know what? You have learned well, grasshopper. Let's attempt to cocoon ourselves into a small circle of like-minded souls. But for you know what, Greg, I think the bottom line is we should follow Muhammad Ali's advice. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee.
1: Excellent, excellent, excellent. That is the way to uh, properly... Put this story into perspective and tell everyone to calm down. Because when you tell them to calm down, that's obviously what they're going to do.
0: (laughs) Well, isn't isn't, uh, Taylor Swift singing, you need to calm down? (laughs)
1: Something like that. (laughs) I wouldn't know, but uh, thank you for thinking I might. So, on that note, uh, go ahead and not get that Kirsten Gillibrand T-shirt. What you can do, though, for absolutely free is go to iTunes and give us a great review, uh, especially if you want to give us five stars. We really appreciate those. And don't forget to uh, get us over at um, on Alexa and all those other home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. And- We're right there for you. So, Jim, have a great day, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us, and tune in again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.